It's great to be back with you. Um, I really appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to come back. And it's, I suppose it's not a subject that we often think about, but it is something that I think we, we lose a lot if we don't know where we came from. Because basically I'm here to talk about, I suppose, the, the second five centuries of church history. 500 to about roughly the year 1000. I mean, let me ask you, does anybody know anything that happened between the year 500 and 1000? <laughs> it's just the thing. Evangelical Christians, I think, very often, uh, we act as if history stopped at the end of the book of Acts and didn't start again until 1517 when Luther knocked the theses into the door at Wittenberg. Intellectual evangelicals were allowed that history continued about the 4th century and we figured out the doctrine of the Trinity, but after that nothing happened until 1517. And, and intellectual evangelicals who've actually read the history of the Reformation know that it, it didn't just start with Luther. I got 100 years before that, you've got Jan Hus. 100 years before that again, you've got Wycliffe, who's basically on the right path. But almost everybody agrees that nothing happened between about 500 and the year 1000. So what am I going to talk about? Well, the thing is, an immense amount actually did happen. An immense amount of what you take for granted about the world you live in is actually shaped by that period of history that we tend to ignore. I mean, the last time I was here, I, I talked about the, the first 500 years. And the central thing there is, is really growth. I mean, you start with 120 people. Within a generation, you have a body that, that spans the width of Europe. By the end of the 4th century, it's the state religion of the Roman Empire. In other words, the empire that crucified Christ has ended up worshipping him. And the engine of all that growth was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost, and the church basically explodes into the world. And in many ways, the story of the 5th to the 10th centuries is the story of what they tried to do to keep that going. What did we depend on to sustain that kind of growth? Because it's always a dangerous game. You're trying to force the Holy Spirit to do something. And the things they tried shaped a huge amount of the world that we live in. There's many lessons for us. I mean, and granted, a lot of the lessons are negative, but that's actually one of the benefits of understanding the history of the church that you're a part of. Because one of the advantages of having been around for 20 centuries is that we've already made all the mistakes. Almost everything that it's possible to do wrong, the church has already done wrong. And you can go and look, that's what we did, and that's what happened. And this is what they had to do to clean it up. Almost any misinterpretation of the Bible, almost any abuse of power, or almost any bad way for the church and governments to relate, we've already done it. And yet the problem is, we keep making these mistakes over and over again. It's depressing how much of this history is surprisingly like what's going on right now. But to frame it, I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Because 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 9, he, he thinks about a lot of the themes that will show up in these 500 years. So First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. I want you to think of these words as we think about 
a lot of the historical events that happened between the 5th and the 10th centuries. Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Those are God's own words. Now, as I mentioned, the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as their state religion about the end of the 4th century. And almost immediately, the empire started to fall apart. If ever it was a parable for not mixing politics and religion, it's right there. Theodosius, who is the, the emperor who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, is also the last Roman emperor who ruled over, ruled over an undivided empire. On his death, he divided the, the empire into two among his sons. And it wasn't a war. It wasn't a, a division. It simply was too big. It was too big for one man to rule. I mean, the Roman Empire was so vast without telephones, without any kind of electronic communication. It took days or weeks or months for orders or for news to cross the width of the empire. And so he, he split it in half and you had a western and an eastern half. And you end up with two emperors and two capitals, one uh, in the west in Rome, the original source of the Roman Empire, and the other is in the east in Constantinople, a city that was originally called Byzantium, but which Constantine renamed after himself Constantinople, and then when it became part of, of a Muslim country, it was renamed Istanbul. Today it's Istanbul. And the two empires started to become very different. The Western Empire retains Latin as their language, but the Eastern Empire, around Constantinople, they predominantly speak Greek. The Eastern Empire survives until about 1453, and we usually call the Eastern Empire the Byzantine Empire, but the Western Empire collapses within a century. And the thing is, whenever the empire splits in half, it takes the church with it. Because that's the first thing to understand. Increasingly, after the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, the tragedy is that Christianity adopted politics. Christianity became a political animal. They began to rely on the empire as the engine of growth. To put it a little simplistically, they started to rely on the state to sustain them. Where for 500 years they depended on the Holy Spirit because there was nothing else. Now we're the state religion. 
No, now the emperor is on our side, and so they begin to depend on politics to grow the church, to, to carry on their mission. And that doesn't mean that none of them are real Christians. It's, it's very easy to say, well, this is all, all terrible. They all fell into, into wrong ideas. But there's a lot of good Christians today doing exactly the same thing. Christians who believe the gospel, who are trying to plant churches, but who are far too entwined in, in, in governments and in politics. These Christians in these centuries that we're thinking about, they, they weren't any longer just, as, as Peter says, a people belonging to God. Increasingly, they, they belonged to an empire, to the Eastern Empire, to the Western Empire, to this emperor, to that emperor. Instead of living such good lives among the pagans, that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, they, they begin to depend on political favors and having influence at court. Instead of submitting yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, the, the leaders of the church start to think, well, we have to be the authorities. If we're going to get anything done for God, we have to have political power. Which people do today, don't they? Well, we need somebody in Westminster. We, we need the right party in Stormont. Otherwise, the church is going to die. We depend on, on politics. That starts here. The church began to think that to carry out Christ's great commission to go make disciples of all nations, that they needed the empire. And again, a lot of people doing this, they're godly men. They're doing it with good motives. Never let yourself think yourself that they were all heretics and none of them were saved. I mean, increasingly, the doctrine of the church is becoming more and more polluted in this time. All of us are wrong about something. I mean, you know, good Baptist that I am, I'm still waiting for all my Presbyterian friends to read the Bible and go and get baptized. But just because you're wrong about some things, it doesn't mean you're wrong about everything. There is, there is true religion. See, it wasn't their bad theology that got them entangled with the state. It's much more a, a matter of their entanglement with the state that led to theological compromise. Because if you want to stay friends with the government, if you want to stay friends with the emperor, you have to downplay some things that he doesn't like. And what that leads to is the first great division in the church. So this happens at the end of this period, in, in the year 1054. Because the first, first great division in the church wasn't the Reformation that divided us all up in, into Roman Catholics and Protestants. What they called the Great Schism of the Western and the Eastern churches. You've heard of the, the Orthodox Church. Mostly in the East, you've got the Greek Orthodox, the, the Russian Orthodox. This is where it begins. In the Great Schism of 1054, the Eastern churches become the Orthodox Church, and the Western churches become what we now call the Catholic Church. Now, the, 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 the fight officially was over the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Western Church, the Catholic Church, taught that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. The Eastern Church said that the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father, which seems eh, a little bit of a small thing to divide the church over, but really that was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. A whole world of theological differences had built up in the West and the East. But the thing I want you to understand is that when that split came, it came right along the border of the two empires. When the church split, it split on, on political lines. You were either a Western Christian 
in the Western Empire or you were an Eastern Christian in the Eastern Empire. Your theology didn't so much come from the Bible, it came from Rome or Constantinople. Because when the church ties itself to the state, it tends not only to fragment like the state, it fragments with the state. I mean, look at America today. You get the same thing happening. But a lot of people who proclaim themselves to be evangelical Christians, a lot of them I'm not so sure, but they are predominantly supporters of the Republican Party in America. To the extent that somebody who who has democratic politics probably wouldn't go to church. I can't go to church. Republicans go to church. Because Christianity has become so associated with, with a political cause. And then what happens is that, that, that Christians in America, because they're so associated with the Republican Party, if the Republican Party do something terrible, they feel they have to support them because they're our guys. Because if they don't keep power, then, then we can't do anything. We don't trust the Holy Spirit anymore. Not in God we trust. It's, it's, in, it's in the state. And that, that's why throughout the history of the church, you have good, godly men defending stupid, wicked policies. Northern Ireland, it's maybe not so bad today, but not so long ago to be a Protestant meant you were a unionist. If you believed in a united Ireland, well, you couldn't possibly be a Christian. But well, well, how are these things connected? How has how, your political opinion on what should happen in Ireland has got anything to do with whether or not you're a Christian? But we've allowed the church to become so associated with certain political causes and certain political parties. Now, that really starts in this time. We are repeating the same mistakes that were made in the second five centuries of the church. And it comes from the same source. You can see it very clearly there. And because so long ago, you can see it, obviously, what happened. They stopped trusting the Holy Spirit and started trusting in politics. And when we see ourselves doing it again, you realize, well, that's what we're doing. I don't actually trust the Holy Spirit to sustain the church. I think I need the right people in power. And that lack of faith always leads to a lack of of the gospel, a loss of the gospel. We know it will because it always has in the past. When the church feels it needs to direct government policy to survive, it has already lost faith in the Holy Spirit. As I said, the Western Roman Empire centered in Rome, it collapsed at the end of the 5th century. But in the 8th century, it made something of a comeback. The Franks were, were people, well, we don't call them Franks anymore. They, they became quite the power in Europe. They occupied what is, broadly speaking, France and Germany and a chunk of Italy. They came to power, they converted to Christianity in about the 6th century. And they became the dominant power in Europe. Initially, they're the, the Merovingians. If you've watched The Matrix, there's a guy called the Merovingian. He's named after these guys. And then later, there's the Carolingians. But at their height, they're, they're led by a guy called Charlemagne. Charlemagne literally means Charles the Great. And there's a seminal moment when Charlemagne is crowned on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., not as a king, not simply as a ruler in Europe, but as a new Roman emperor. It's a very bold move. The Pope comes and he crowns him as a new Roman emperor. It establishes what, what in history is called the Holy Roman Empire. 
Although as Voltaire later said, it was neither holy nor Roman nor really an empire. But the really revealing thing is what Charlemagne the king and Leo III the pope were trying to do. Because Charlemagne was trying to establish himself as an anointed king, like David in the Old Testament. I have been anointed king, and therefore I have a right to direct the affairs of the church. But Leo, the Pope, he's trying to establish himself and the church as, as the, the authority on earth which made king kings, kings and the kings. You can't become a king unless the church allows you to. In Leo's eyes, the church represents Christ on earth, and so the church should have a veto, then who gets to be the king? And that means logically the church has a right to dispose, depose kings if they don't like him. And they did this a dozen times in history. The Pope declared that this man is, is no longer king. He did it with King John in the 12th century. He did it with Queen Elizabeth in the 15th century. So you have this contest. In Charlemagne's thinking, the king is the head of the church, just, just like the queen is today in the Church of England. In Leo's thinking, the church is the head of all kings, which became the policy of the Roman Catholic Church for many centuries. And that, that thinking that it, it's either God, the king, and the church, or it's either God, the church, and all kings, that that becomes how everybody thinks about the relationship between the church and the state. The thing is, no matter which way you do it, the church always loses out. We know that because it, it always did. You just have to read a history book. When a king rules over the church, the church just becomes a department of state. That they teach whatever the government tells them they need to be teaching. That's what's happening in the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Because Russia and the Ukraine both had a state church. And the, the, the patriarchs of both those churches are waiting to see who wins. If Russia wins in Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian church will cease to exist and, and the Russian church will be bigger because it's an organ of the Russian government. And then if Ukraine survives, then the, the Russian church is going to get kicked out of the Ukraine. Because those churches are completely allied to kings. When the church becomes a, sets itself underneath a king, it simply becomes an instrument of, of the state. In England, you've got the Church of England. It's still, you know, the queen is the head of the church. And she's a lot nicer than Mr. Putin. But it's really the same thing. The Church of England don't say anything. That isn't a part of government policy because they're part of the government. They are under the king. But on the other hand, if the, the church rules over kings, which we might think that's great, you know, you know, like in America, if they got to choose the president, that means that the church has to say yes or no. Whether this man becomes president, and we think that would be great. In practice, we've already tried it. What we got was medieval Catholicism. You got an ignorant clergy, immoral bishops, and doctrine being twisted just to make money because that's what you are. You're a political animal. We've done both of these things before. We, we've tried having God and then kings and under kings churches, and we tried having God in the church and under the, the church all the kings, and it didn't work. So why do we keep doing it again? And the answer is we've forgotten. We don't know what happened in the second five centuries of the church. No one, no one reads this stuff. There's a poem, a poet called Steve Turner. He says, history repeats itself. 
It has to because nobody listens. Church history teaches us these mistakes. The church in the first five centuries, when it was forced to depend on nothing but the Holy Spirit, then we lived as aliens and strangers in the world, just the way Peter told us to. They were neither kings, nor were they the servants of kings. Individual Christians might have have been a king. Individual Christians might have served kings. But the church stood apart, as it has to. It has to speak truth to all. When we turn our our ministers and our bishops into politicians, they stop being ministers and politicians. That's what history teaches us. That's That's not just a theory. We've tried it, and that's what happens. When pastors start setting political policy, they stop being pastors. They start looking after politics and stop looking after people. We know this because we've tried it. When the church looks to politics instead of Christ, we are not just less powerful, we are powerless. And the starkest proof of that is in the other great event of the second five centuries of the church, which is the rise of Islam. Because in the, between the 5th and the 10th century, that's when Islam comes into existence. Somewhere around 570 AD, nobody knows exactly, in the town of Mecca, which is in present-day Saudi Arabia, a man called Abdullah had a son, and he named his son Muhammad. Muhammad married a wealthy widow who died in 595, leaving only daughters, and he worked on, on camel caravans. He was a businessman. He came into contact with all kinds of people. And in 622, he moved from Mecca to Medina. And that move is the start of his ministry as a prophet. It's, it's year one in the Islamic calendar. And the best way really to think of Islam, I think, is that it's not really so much a new religion as a Christian heresy. Islam is, is a Christian heresy. That's when you read the Quran. You, you read about Abraham. You, you read about the flood. You read about Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. Like, technically, it might not be a heresy because Muhammad wasn't a Christian. But if you want to think about what category it fills, this is what it is. It took a lot of Christian doctrines and it, and it distorted them, just like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, unlike some other heresies, some of Muhammad's false teaching seems to have come simply from ignorance. Surah 5, 1.16 seems to suggest that he thought the Christian doctrine of the Trinity was the Father, Jesus, and Mary. He just didn't fully understand Christianity. But the fundamental truth that he taught was submission to the law. Islam, the word Islam literally means submission. A Muslim is somebody who submits. And if you wanted to summarize Islam in one sentence, it's this. Islam is Christianity without atonement. There's no sacrifice for sins in Islam. There's just arbitrary forgiveness. Either Allah decides to forgive you or he doesn't. It's about the law. You submit to the law. You pray five times a day. You observe the pillars of Islam. And if your good outweighs your bad, you go to heaven. That's the literal doctrine of Islam. You hear a lot of Christians talking like that. That's Islamic doctrine. There's a literal picture of skills. If you do more good than evil, you go to heaven. Because Islam is Christianity without atonement. 
And it's hard to overestimate the impact that Islam had on the church. The Eastern Empire, Eastern Church, was devastated. Islam nearly overrun Europe. They took Spain. Spain was, a, was a, an Islamic country for centuries. Christianity in this period had five great centers of learning and of culture. They were called patriarchies. There was Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandra, Rome, and Constantinople. And by the year 1000, three of them were gone. Three out of the five centuries centers of Christianity. And it happened with stunning speed. The Muslims marched in Jerusalem in 636. In 638, they took Antioch, the city that sent Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. Alexandria and Egypt, which was the intellectual heart of Christianity for centuries, fell in 641. And Carthage, which was the last vestige of resistance in North Africa, fell in 697. You see, we forget that for 600 years, Egypt and Libya and Syria and Iran and Iraq, all these countries we have in the news that, that we think of as totally alien centers of a, another religion, they were the heart of Christianity. The oldest churches in the world were in Iran and Iraq and Syria and Egypt. The whole of North Africa was the heart of Christianity. Some of the church's greatest teachers were from North Africa. Ignatius, who was a student of the Apostle John, well, he, he ministered in Antioch, in what today is Turkey. John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, preached in Istanbul. Augustine, a theological giant who inspired the reformers, was born in Algeria. Because this is where Christianity was. And yet within 140 years of Muhammad's birth, all those churches simply disappeared. Christianity vanished from North Africa. That's a fundamental lesson to us. Christ promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, but he didn't say specific countries would stay Christian. He didn't say specific churches would last forever. The church in whole countries can vanish. You know, we look today at the news and we say, look at the state of Christianity in the United Kingdom. Look at the state of Christianity in Europe. History tells us that Christianity could vanish entirely from Europe. And that's nothing new. Christianity already did vanish entirely from Europe in the Dark Ages. And it was evangelized twice. This happens. That doesn't mean the church is falling. It doesn't mean the world is ending. But the more important lesson that we, I think, need to remember from all of that is how fragile Christianity becomes when it's depending on the state. See, this kind of Christianity that has stopped depending on the Holy Spirit and started trusting in politics that has associated itself with emperors that either wants to be ruler over kings or wants to be a servant to kings, that Christianity has no power. It has all the money. It has beautiful cathedrals. Its bishops can afford to have the most wonderful robes, but there is no power in that Christianity because they have traded away the gospel for that influence. The church traded her independence and her spiritual power for political influence, and that left her powerless in the face of Islam. 
One historian, Everett Ferguson, says this, Many people's Christianity was bound up with former pagan beliefs and practices, prayers to the saints, reverence for Mary, the use of amulets and other features of magic. And when the Muslims came along saying that Muhammad was the last of the prophets, many people accepted that new religion. This purified ethical monotheism, their opposition to superstitious practices, seemed to represent something higher. We see the same thing today, the apparent collapse of Christianity in Ireland. Christianity is is vanishing from England. The increase of of people who who declare themselves to be none in America. I I, I am none of these. I have no religion. The problem with what's happening today with the church in our country and in these Western countries isn't that we don't have enough political influence. It's that we've had too much. We depended too much on politicians, and when the politicians couldn't deliver, because they can't, because they're not God, the church is this, just this hollow shell, and it takes nothing but a tap, and it falls to pieces. That's what happened to the church in North Africa. That's why there are virtually no Christians in Iran and Iraq, and in, the, in Libya and Syria. Political influence was not the solution, it was the problem. And that's what the history of the church teaches us. That's what these centuries remind us of. If only we had read these things, and we would know this. Our response today shouldn't be to trade more of our convictions to keep friends in Westminster. We have to restore the truth of the gospel and to revive the genuine worship of Christ. Remember, we are aliens and strangers in the world. We should live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God. By all means, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, but live as free men, not as slaves to these things. And when we wonder at the state of the world, I mean, there's there's a number of of responses that history has, has taught us don't help. When Islam rose and started waging its way through North Africa and destroying and devastating the church. A lot of people thought that Islam was a punishment from God. This is a punishment set because we have sinned. And lots of them had sinned. But the problem is what they started to do, they hated themselves. There was a, a whole a program of penance. that They would beat themselves with sticks. They would fast for days after days after days thinking this is going to fix it. This will stop Islam. The problem is Islam was not a punishment for sin. Calls for repentance didn't help. Because the problem wasn't the sin in the church, and there was certainly sin in the church. The problem was they didn't love Christ anymore. They didn't trust Christ. And we see the same thing. You look at redefinitions of marriage, all kinds of social upheavals happening among us. Well, why do they move so fast? It's not because the church is sinful. The church has always been sinful. We don't trust Christ. We don't actually believe that the Holy Spirit is enough. Another response to the rise of Islam was that they thought this is the end of the world. They thought this is the apocalypse. Muhammad is the Antichrist. And he's a really good fit. The church has probably never faced a devastation as great as the rise of Islam. If any generation had a right to think that theirs were the last of days, it was the generation who lived in the 7th and 8th centuries. 
And because they thought that this is it, a lot of them simply retreated. They said themselves, the Antichrist has come, the church is undergoing the great tribulation, all we have to go is hide in the desert until Jesus comes. And yet here we are, 13 centuries later. When people tell you that these are the last days because things are so terrible, things have been this terrible before. We've just forgotten about it. When people tell you that you should go and sell your house and go and move to the Mount of Olives and wait for Jesus to come back, people have thought that over and over and over again. They thought it when Islam rose. There was great panic across Europe when they approached the year 1000. The year 1000 scared the life out of people. I mean, the book of the Revelation literally says, when a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. People were terrified. Obviously, it's the end of the world. In the 14th century, the Black Death killed essentially half the population of Europe. You think you're scared by COVID-19? 50%. Everybody you knew, 50% of them died. But the simple truth is, as Jesus told us so long ago, no one knows the day or the hour. So stop listening to mad people on YouTube. Start listening to Peter again. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires. They war against your soul. Live good lives among the pagans. that They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits, whenever that is. It's not our business to try and figure out, is these the last days? Are they the last of the last days? Live good lives among the pagans. That's your job. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men. But don't think you have to be the authority. Don't think it matters who's in power. It really doesn't. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. We know this works. We know this works because it's in the Bible. But we know it works because every time we tried something else, the church vanished, lost the gospel, became corrupted, and made no difference whatsoever. If you want to change the world you live in, if you want to change this country, Do what Peter says. Love the believers, fear God, and honor the king. And that's what history teaches us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the the history of all the things that you have done through many centuries. Father, we are humbled by the sheer number of ways in which we have corrupted your gospel, in which we have lost faith in you. But we thank you, Lord, that we may learn from these things. That these things, as as the things written in the Old Testament, these things are here for our encouragement and for our rebuke. We ask that you would make us wise. Make us wise to the, the foolishness of depending on men or governments instead of you through your Spirit. Make us wise not to be afraid by upheavals in society. For they come and they go but the Lord remains forever. We ask, Father, you teach us to have this one thing in our heart, that we may trust Christ, that we may live for Christ, and that we may rejoice and so delight in our Savior that those who watch us will long 
to have our Savior for themselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.